0: on this episode of the blue jacketeer podcast we will be covering chapter three of the Corman manual welcome to the blue jacketeer podcast where we help you prepare for the navy wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com hello and welcome back to the bluejacketeer.com podcast for hospital Corman. once again i'm alex lemock on today's broadcast, we will continue to dive into the Hospital Corman Manual, Nav Etra 14295 Bravo. And don't forget, after this lesson, there will be an audio quiz. So sit back, take off your blousing straps, kick up your feet, and listen up. This is Chapter 3 of the Hospital Corman Manual, Healthcare Administration Programs. The objective of this chapter is to give hospital corpsmen information on the types of healthcare administration programs that they might be tasked with managing or assisting with on a daily basis. Hospital corpsmen have come a long way since the early days of Lob Lolly Boys, tending to patients and then moving right along to the next without concern for documentation or patient rights. Fortunately, for today's corpsmen, there are set ways of going about documenting patient care but also ensuring that this information is kept private and away from the hands of individuals without a need to know. In most instances, the HM is the very first healthcare provider that the patient comes in contact with at an NCF or DTF. They are tasked with greeting the patient, determining the reason for their visit, setting up appointments, triage, and often the first interview of the patient's complaint. With this being known, it is essential that HMs are very aware Of the healthcare administration programs that the navy medical department uses to help protect not only the corpsmen doctors and nurses but the patient before a patient can be seen in a military treatment facility their status and eligibility must first be determined this is accomplished by using their military id card and the defense enrollment eligibility reporting system or dears dears is a computer-based enrollment and eligibility verification system that was developed as a way to help control costs associated with the misuse of military medicine by ineligible persons. Eligibility is determined by a number of factors that can be further explored through referencing the NavMedCom instruction 6320.3 series, Medical and Dental Care for Eligible Persons at Navy Medical Department Facilities, as well as NavMed PTAC 5020 Resources Management Handbook. While active duty and reserve personnel are automatically enrolled in DEERS, family members of service members are also enrolled if affiliated with one of the seven uniformed services. These services include the Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, Navy, Coast Guard, Public Health Service, and National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Family members must be enrolled utilizing the DD-1172. Uniform Services Identification and Privilege Card Application. Prior to care, both the ID card is verified for status and expiration as well as a DEERS check via CHCS. The process for conducting this check can be found outlined in OPNAV Instruction 1750.2 Series, Defense Enrollment Eligibility Reporting System. If a patient presents for non-emergency care without a valid ID card but is in the DEERS system, Prior to receiving care, they must first sign a statement that they are eligible and give reason why they do not possess a valid ID card. If a valid ID card is not presented to the treatment facility within 30 days of care, the patient will be billed as a civilian humanitarian non-indigent in accordance with NAVMED PTAC5020. No patient will be provided non-emergency care if they are absent in both a valid ID card and DEERS enrollment. If the HM determines that the patient is not eligible for care, they should notify a command designated supervisor to inform the patient. There are nine instances where a patient may receive care despite not being enrolled in the DEERS system. These are known as DEERS eligibility overrides. These overrides are as follows. Number one, the patient presents with an original or copy of the DD 1172 used for DEER's enrollment. Number two, all other family members recently becoming eligible for benefits, such as new mothers, babies, and recent adoptions. Number three, a new identification card is issued within the last 120 days. Number four, if the system indicated an expired ID card, but the patient has an ID card issued within the last 120 days in hand. Number five, A sponsor entered active duty status for a period greater than 30 days. A copy of the orders stating that the member will be on active duty for a period over 30 days will be accepted for the first 120 days of active duty. Number six. A newborn is granted access to care for the first 60 days of life. On the 61st day the newborn shifts to TRICARE standard. Number seven. A medical emergency established through the command policy. Number eight, if a sponsor is stationed outside the 50 United States or to a duty station with an APO or FPO address, they will not be denied care as long as the sponsor is enrolled and eligible in DEERS. Number nine, if an eligibility check indicates that the deceased sponsor is not enrolled in DEERS, or if the survivor is listed as the sponsor. The survivor will be treated on the first visit and referred to the local PSD for correction. All subsequent visits must have a valid DD-1172. An individual may also obtain care if they are not enrolled in the DEER system via a few exemptions to the seven Uniform services rules. These personnel include, number one, Secretary of the Navy designees, number two, foreign military personnel including their family members assigned through personnel exchange programs or other means. These individuals also include NATO military personnel passing through the US, crew and passengers of visiting military aircraft, and crew of ships of NATO nations that come into port. Number three, other foreign military personnel may be eligible through public law or DOD agreement. Number four, members of organizations such as Red Cross, Secret Service, and the Federal Aviation Administration, and some retirees, veterans, that may also fall into this category. TRICARE is the medical benefits program that was established to manage the care services in the military MTFs. Additionally, it manages the cost-sharing charges for medically necessary civilian services and supplies needed for the diagnosis and treatment of illness or injury. TRICARE is utilized in the case the required service is not available from the direct care system of the DOD treatment facility. Information on TRICARE can be obtained through the booklet, Sailing with TRICARE, for sailors and their families, and the publication, TRICARE Provider Directory. Dental TRICARE information is provided in the TRICARE Dental Program Benefit booklet. Let's now take some time to cover some dental specific information. There are three types of care when it comes to dental care provided in a DOD system. These types of care are routine, emergency, and elective. The patient's eligibility status determines their level of care authorized. Active duty and reservists recalled for a period of 30 days are eligible for all services. Family members are eligible to enroll in the TRICARE dental plan as long as a service member, both active and reserve, has at least 12 months remaining on active duty. Navy DTFs must prioritize their care availability depending on staff and facilities. When care cannot be provided to all beneficiaries requesting care, then they must be prioritized according to these categories. Category 1A, members of the uniform services on active duty. Category 1B, members of the reserve component of the Armed Forces and National Guard personnel. Category 2, family member of an active duty member of the Uniform Services, family members of persons who died while in such status. Category 3, members of the Senior Reserve Officers' Training Corps. Category 4, retired members of the Uniformed Services and their family members, including family members of deceased retired members. Category five, civilian employees of the federal government. Category six, all others. This is only in regard to non-emergency care. Any emergency care needed prompts the DTF to elevate an individual's treatment priority category. As stated previously, dental care is broken down into three types, routine, emergency, and elective. Let's talk about each one in more detail. Routine dental care includes all the medical, surgical, and restorative treatments of oral disease, injuries, and deficiencies that come within the field of dentistry. It is restrictive to active duty and reservists activated over 30 days only. Emergency dental care is treatment that is necessary to relieve pain, control bleeding, and manage acute septic conditions or injuries to the oral facial structures. This care is authorized worldwide to all treatment categories. Elective dental care, such as orthodontics or replacing amalgam fillings with gold crowns, may only be authorized upon elevation by the dental officer in accordance with Navy policy. Let's now take some time to talk about some Navy programs. Navy medicine ensures quality care is given at all times through its quality assurance program. This program is designated to standardize medical care across the Navy. It utilizes various forms of data to evaluate the degree of excellence and to make improvements as needed for quality care. Its determinations and evaluations are of high value to both the Joint Commission and the Medical Inspector General. A list of the required elements for process improvements or quality assurance programs of naval hospitals, medical clinics, and dental clinics can be found in OpNav Instruction 6320.7 Series, Healthcare Quality Assurance Policies for Operating Forces, and the BUMED Instruction 6010.13 Series, Quality Assurance Policy. The delivery of quality healthcare is also managed through the Healthcare Relations Program, outlined in BUMED Instruction 6300.10 Series. This program encompasses a three-part system, internal, external, and patient relations. The primary goal of this program is to help resolve patient complaints and problems through patient interventions and negotiations. It's been a longstanding goal for the Navy Medical Department to provide the best care possible. This is not only accomplished through superior medicine, but also interpersonal skills with the patient. A subset of the healthcare relations program is a patient contact point program where the MTF or DTF aims to resolve any issues a patient may have before they even leave the facility. It is a Navy requirement that all care facilities have this program established and active. Under this program, a patient contact representative is established in writing by the commanding officer and must have their picture posted in the facility at the front desk or a reception area visible to all patients A copy of the patient's Bill of Rights should also accompany the picture. Any complaints are routed through the individual and throughout the chain of command for action and annual assessment from the Quality Assurance Program. Another program established in the Navy Medical Department is known as the Family Advocacy Program. This program is used to identify and monitor spouse abuse and neglect, as well as sexual abuse in military families. It is managed by the Family Advocacy Representative, and a base-wide committee of medical, line, chaplain, and family service center personnel who review the case to determine the nature and action to be taken. If the case is found to be substantiated, it is reported to BUMED for statistics and monitoring of abuser's future duty assignments. More information on this program can be found in SECNAV instruction 1752.3 series, Family Advocacy Program, as well as BUMED instruction 6320.70 series. The Drug and Alcohol Abuse Prevention and Control Program is the Navy's approach to eliminating drug and alcohol abuse. This program tasks Command Drug and Alcohol Program Advisors, or DAPAs, as the command's primary advisors on all alcohol and drug-related matters. Their responsibilities are outlined in OPNAV instruction 5350.4 series. Drug and Alcohol Abuse Prevention and Control. The goal of the Drug and Alcohol Abuse Program is to provide methods of deterrence and prevention along with education and treatment of individuals found guilty of abuse or in need of substance abuse treatment. Another program that is near and dear to all sailors' hearts is the Physical Readiness Program governed by OPNAV instruction 6110.1 series. Testing is required for all naval personnel on a semi-annual basis. The medical department advises on the development of exercises, reviews patients for potential waivers, conducts research, and provides technical assistance to BUPERS. Another important part of the medical department is the ever-so-present legal aspect. There are very few aspects of providing patient care that do not include the potential for legal implications. Any questions regarding legal issues that surface when dealing with patients should be addressed with the Navy JAG or Navy Civil Service lawyers. A very real medical legal issue is that of consent. With limited exceptions, every person has the right not to be touched without first giving permission or consent. Consent of some kind must be obtained prior to medical care being initiated. One type of consent is known as informed consent. This type of consent requires that the healthcare provider give the patient all the information necessary for a knowledgeable decision. The patient only after being fully informed can refuse care or consent to care that is recommended. The duty to inform the patient and explain the consequences of all recommendations and their right to refusal lies with the provider. This responsibility cannot be delegated. In cases where the patient's life is at risk and care is considered necessary, Consent is not required. It is often impossible in these situations for the patient to give consent due to the nature of their illness or injury. In these cases, the appropriate course of treatment is given based on an assessment by a qualified medical professional and care is given on the level that a reasonable person would expect in that situation. The competency of the patient plays a role in if they are able to give consent for medical care. Competency refers to the ability to understand the nature and consequences of one's decisions. In the event the patient is found to be incompetent to consent to care, whether that by age or physical or mental impairment, the consent rests on who has legal capacity of the patient, often the parent or guardian. An advanced directive may also be in place in some situations. This legally binding document may be used to indicate who can provide informed consent for the patient in the case where they cannot themselves. It is filed in the patient's health record, as well as electronically, for easy and quick retrieval. A witness must also be present anytime consent is obtained. This witness may be any individual, including hospital staff members, but it is advised not to be any staff member involved in the direct care of the patient. It is also in the best interest of medical legal considerations to not be a relative of the patient. This protects not only the patient, but also the treatment facility. Consent is valid as long as there are no changes to the healthcare recommendations or treatment plan. If a significant time period has elapsed between previous consent and new treatment needed, it is also advised that new consent is obtained. Unfortunately, we are not all perfect when it comes to patient care, and even the best corps make mistakes every now and then. When an event occurs that causes harm to a patient or a patient believes they have been treated inappropriately by medical staff, an incident report may be filed. Incident reports fall under the purview of Title 10 USC 1102, confidentiality of medical quality assurance records. When a member of the staff becomes aware of a potential incident, it is their responsibility to make the hospital command staff aware of the situation as soon as possible. This should be done through the quality care system. Quality care review reports, or QCRs, are designed to promptly document all the circumstances surrounding an event. This report alerts the commanding officer, command risk manager, and other involved administrators and clinicians of the potential liability situation. All QCRs are protected and should be treated as confidential documents. The report should never be included in the patient's treatment record. It should contain only factual information and not include conclusions. Further guidance related to the risk management program can be found in BUMED instruction 6010.21 series. Security of medical information is paramount. Patient's health information should only be disclosed in the direct line of patient care. However, there are some times when medical information regarding a patient's health or treatment may be needed to be released. There are two federal statutes that combine to establish criteria for collecting maintaining and releasing medical treatment records. These two statutes are known as the Freedom of Information Act and the Privacy Act. The Freedom of Information Act governs the disclosures of documents maintained by government agencies. All requests for information under this act require response in accordance with the provisions of the act. The official having responsibility for the record or information requested has 20 working days to respond to the requester. A naval record will be withheld only when it is exempt from disclosure under the Freedom of Information Act. The balance between the public's right to know under the Freedom of Information Act and the government's protected rights and interests is established through the Privacy Act of 1974. The Privacy Act enacts safeguards concerning the rights to privacy by regulating the collection, maintenance, use, and dissemination of personal information by federal agencies. Another method of controlling health information is through the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act This law was enacted in 1996 with the overall goal of providing safeguards for protected health information to ensure patient privacy is maintained. There are two rules under this law the privacy rule which addresses appropriate disclosures and the security rule which addresses and regulates electronic disclosures. The HIPAA Privacy Rule allows the use and disclosure of protected health information for treatment, payment, and healthcare operations without written authorization from the patient themselves. The HIPAA Privacy Rule was put into action on April 14, 2003, and is guided by DOD instruction 6025.18 series. DOD Health Information Privacy Regulation. The security rule under the HIPAA law is designated to provide protection of individually identifiable health information that is maintained, transmitted, and received via electronic form. It is guided by and can be referenced through DOD 8580.02-R Series DOD Health Information Security Regulation There are certain circumstances and medical situations where law enforcement must get involved. In these cases, medical information may be released for the benefit of criminal cases and investigations. In these cases, law enforcement personnel may request to interview the patient and the provider, as well as access health records pertaining to the incident. However, medical care or treatment should never be performed just because it is requested by law enforcement. This is backed up by the Posse Comitatus Act, a federal statute that was enacted in 1956 stating that it is unlawful for the U.S. military to be used to enforce or assist in the enforcement of federal or state civil laws. Records of patients requested by law enforcement should only be made available to investigators once they have established a need to know. This determination will only be made by the hospital's JAG or public affairs officer. Patients that are treated by the medical department with the final disposition of being turned over to law enforcement for the purpose of arrest should never be released until the patient is cleared fully by medical and considered fit for confinement. There may also be situations in which a person is already under the jurisdiction of law enforcement and requires medical treatment. These prisoner patients fall into three categories of eligible beneficiaries. Enemy prisoners of war or other detained personnel non-military federal prisoners and military prisoners. Enemy prisoners of war and other detained are entitled to all necessary care, subject to the availability of care and facilities. Non-military federal prisoners are only authorized emergency care. Military personnel who are detained overseas are generally discharged until they're released from confinement. During this time, however, they will normally retain health care benefits. However, if a military service member is a prisoner with punitive discharge that have been executed and requires hospitalization beyond expiration of their sentences are not eligible for care. They may be hospitalized as civilian, humanitarian, non-military indigents until further disposition is made. A very real issue that plagues the military as well as the civilian sector is that of sexual assault and rape. These are criminal offenses that oftentimes cause serious physical injury to the victim. Sexual assault and rape cases are both a medical and legal issue. If the patient desires the medical department will perform a sexual assault investigation kit provided by NCIS. This kit has step-by-step procedures and is allowable as evidence in a court of law. Further information on this type of care evaluation, and medical legal documentation for alleged victims can be found in NavMedCom instruction 6310.3 series, Management of Alleged or Suspected Sexual Assaults and Rape Cases. Ultimately, all patients in this situation should be treated with the utmost respect and dignity. They should be afforded every bit of privacy possible, no matter what the situation or alleged situation is. Guidance for the care and support of alleged victims of sexual assault can be further obtained in OpNav Instruction 1752.1 Series, Sexual Assault Victim Intervention, Savvy Program, and SecNav Instruction 5800.11 Series, Victim and Witness Program. Another sensitive issue the medical department personnel may encounter is child and spouse abuse and neglect. Like sexual assault cases, these situations require not only respect and dignity, but also medical and legal considerations. The Navy utilizes the Family Advocacy Program to assist in these such cases. Information can be further referenced in SecNav Instruction 1752.3 series and BUMED Instruction 6320.70 series. Being a hospital corpsman is not just a job. It's a passion. As healthcare providers, we must be able to remain flexible and work in many different environments on multitudes of various tasks. One day, you could find yourself in the field with a wounded Marine, while the next day, you find yourself submitting the daily sick call logs to the commanding officer. Having the understanding of Navy healthcare admin programs and instructions makes a well rounded medical provider who can be put in any situation the Navy may ask and not only perform, but thrive. This concludes our lesson for Chapter 3 of the Hospital Corps Manual healthcare administration programs. Don't forget to tune in next time when we will continue with the Hospital Corps Manual covering Chapter 4, Medical Records.